Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. And then my mind was kind of like, you know, the head in the fishbowl. But it takes me into the bathroom and says, this is how you brush your teeth. Brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat, brush, rinse, repeat. But there were two girls. And it was like, you don't have to give us a ride. You can't fill us no. He can't refuse us. He'll let us in his car. The thoughts were all alone in this empty void. They got close enough where he said he could see, you know, their eyes and and how intelligent they seem. This doesn't look right. These gremlin type creatures. This doesn't look right. No pupils, no iris. Three fingers, three long fingers. And this is when the mental torture. And then, and then it was eerily quiet. Hello. Hey, Adam. How's it going, Rob? Oh, pretty good. Pretty decent. I'm hearing some serious bass outside. Do you hear that? Yeah, yeah. I wonder if that's uh, neighborhood's going to hell. Picking up over the picking <laughs> up over the mic. <laughs> Just as soon as we start recording, some bass starts thumping. Serfiel, what's up, man? What's up? Not a whole lot. Not a whole what? lot. Just looking forward to the program. Was that your bass thumping? Yeah, probably. It's probably some new bang. <laughs> 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 One of these days, they'll be they'll be. Uh, They'll be uh, pumping some new bang Oh, uh, They, they already right. do, man. They already do. All right. Awesome. Well, Rob, you stressed out, man? No, How's no. I'm, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling pretty good. I mean, all, all things considered. So, Serfiel, you seem like the kind of guy that knows how to keep squirrels out of a building. <laughs> squirrels? Yeah. <laughs> We've been invaded multiple times recently, and it's, it's starting to drive me crazy. Start busting the cap in that ass. <laughs> no. I saw down every branch that's near the studio. I've tried covering up holes. They just chew new ones. I don't know what to do. Like, what about mouse traps? Yeah, I could do that. Like, because there can't be that many of them. Oh, I don't, we, we probably don't want to get into trouble with Peter. I'm trying, I'm trying to. Make a humane trap and simply release them back into your backyard. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we don't want any any crazy people coming here and shoot us up like they did YouTube, right? Ugh. Iranian PETA members. How about that? 
Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We should ask our guest about that tonight. He wrote a little blog on it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. We got Lauren Coleman coming on. She was mad about the YouTube policy, right? The policy change. Yep. She's mad about them monetize about uh, her videos being demonetized, and they said stuff like uh, that some of her videos were inappropriate because apparently she was wearing exercise clothing, and they said that was inappropriate for children. So she gets on in one of the videos and says that she had like Nicki Minaj and all these other like um, you know pop singers that said that that was inappropriate. But why did, why did YouTube say that she was inappropriate? So she goes over there with a gun and shoots up YouTube headquarters. Yeah. This was last Tuesday as we're recording this on the 10th. I haven't even heard about it. I haven't heard about this. (laughs) No, really? Dude, I live in a hole. Like seriously, (laughs) as soon as I saw something about it, I was like, Oh God, it's going to be, Someone responding to some of the YouTube censorship, and they're going to use this to demonize all the alternative media people even more. But yeah. then it was just about money. Yeah. Well, see the, the you know honestly the first thing I thought was it was it was probably somebody like a an info warrior. Yeah. Probably yeah. going out there and doing that, and that's what I immediately jumped to. And then when I heard that it was just some woman that was pissed off about the about her money being made. Not or not being made that uh, that was doing it, you know. But it was funny the media coverage of it because they really didn't cover it that much because it really just did not. It didn't have the sell right point right. to it as like the conservative, uh, wacko going in there and killing a bunch of people. Yeah, I think some of the conservative press was at the very start trying to uh, capitalize on on her being from Iran. But uh, mm-hmm. after that, it kind of just fizzled out. Right, right. Well, they said something like she was a, a Muslim PETA member from Iran. And I mean, I mean she's weird. She was weird looking, too. Like, well, she looked crazy. I mean, did you, some of that stuff just, I mean, she looked like she was made out of plastic. Yeah, she looked crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the cops apparently, uh, apparently they failed uh, to prevent anything because the, apparently, like her parents, our, and our her brother called the police and said they were yeah. concerned about what she was going to do and they needed to to check up on her and they did go check up on her but nobody took her into custody or to take her back to her parents and they let her go and then the next 30 minutes but literally i think like 30 minutes to an hour later she goes and shoots up the uh youtube headquarters a lot of the right nobody died by the way yeah. There was like three people wounded or something. A lot of the right-wing media have, have really gone into uh, it, the fact that it was declared a gun-free zone just a few days prior, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. So they're like, see? Well, since we're still on this topic, you know, it seems like every time that uh, in America we were always con- talking about this topic, I did get a message on Facebook from a listener that lives in Australia. And I thought I would read this because this is interesting. He is responding to where I made the comment that I really didn't know what the the state of gun control in Australia was or what sparked it or anything like that. So yeah, he, we start- he, he gives a really good synopsis here. Yeah, in the context we're talking about um, gun registration and 
guns being taken away and how the order of all how all that happened and whether or not it affected mass shootings and all of that. So right, and I really appreciate that also that this listener uh, decided to drop some knowledge on us and said it's just telling us that we were wrong. And, oh yeah, by by all know. means, correct us anytime you can or help us out because. <laughs> so he says, long time listener, first time contactee, which I thought was interesting from. The discussion, he calls himself a contactee of us, not an alien contactee. <laughs> oh, okay. That's what I thought you I'm, from, I'm from Western Australia and a firearms enthusiast. Just listened to episode 205 and thought I could share something for you. Our government drafted legislation in 1992 for the requisition of our semi-automatic long arms and shotguns. In 1996, we had a massacre that was highly questionable and was blocked by Parliament for an inquest for 30 years, which meant the shooter never received an actual trial, and all evidence that gave doubt was ignored by the Crown. They then enacted the gun control measures and bought the firearms back from legitimate owners. Now Australia is heralded as a prodigy for gun control and the outcomes. The only measure that was adequately implemented, which no one mentions, is our legitimate need for a firearm. They removed self-defense from the list and placed the burden on the states to provide def- defense for civilians. And by states, he means Australian states. They refer to those as states. This means we cannot own a firearm, pepper spray, taser, baseball bat, screwdriver, hammer for the purpose of self-defense if we are searched randomly and the police deem we have an implement for self-defense, we are fined and face imprisonment. Our nation's burglaries, home invasions, thefts, assaults, rapes, petty crime all rose dramatically. We have had people arrested and imprisoned for defending their own home and children. We now have what's called equal force. We have to meet equal force without premeditation. This implies a burglar breaks in, he has a knife, I reach for my guns, I go to jail. If he assaults me and I use excessive force, I hurt him more because that is not equal force. I face prosecution. If I see him with a knife and I attack him, it was not equal because I took action before the criminal. It is the state's duty to provide protection now and police at best are 16 minutes average call out. Now for our laws. We can have infinite magazines, but a 10 round capacity maximum. We face seven years in jail for a 15-round magazine. Yet as a pistol shooter, I can change a magazine and reacquire within 1.2 seconds and take a center mass, 10 at, at, t- center mass 10 at 25 meters. We cannot have such rifles as the Ruger 10-22 as it is considered we will massacre, but I can own multiple concealable handguns with infinite magazines. Question mark, question mark. We have a law in WA, Western Australia, called 26B of the Firearms Act 1976, which states of military appearance, we have single action point two two three five point five six rifles banned because they have an RIS rail on them for a scope, yet we can buy 50 caliber rifles as long as it does not resemble something of a military appearance. This means with 26B, we cannot have paintball markers of a certain look or style. No airsoft, no gel ball blasters, BB guns, or even toy guns. What they do not tell America or the news is that the Green Party here, mostly most anti-anything fun, is that a commission (laughs) three years ago discovered that less than 1.6% of firearms ever commissioned in a crime here came from a legitimate source, i.e. stolen from a legal gun owner. 
That means that 98.4% of guns here that criminals have been imported are smuggled. A quick search in the news media for a man called Mick Gatto will see he received a $2,000 fine for a sawn-off shotgun pump action loaded in his toilet. This person is a career gangster and murderer. In our laws, he could have faced 49 years total for violations or a firearms laws. He received a $2,000 fine. A gentleman returning from a hunting trip in Meridian, Western Australia, lost his wallet, which contained his ID card and firearm license. He received three months in jail and two-year good behavior with a 10-year suspension from owning a firearm. Because he was in possession of firearms, he legally acquired and was legally registered to him, but because he lost his license that day and could not produce it, he breached the law. Make no mistake, even the consensus here is that they will take your guns and they will not stop until the criminals get off and the law-abiding are the criminal. This is no exaggeration. We hear in our news and media that they want to disarm the American population at all costs. We hear how great things are without law-abiding people having guns. We have massive gun problems here, except they are owned by nefarious people who would actually use them nefariously. I, as a sports shooter and hunter, abide by every law. I cannot be caught drunk driving, too many speeding fines, not paying taxes, etc. I lose my ability to have a firearm. I cannot defend my life or any others, including my five children, or I will be in prison and can be sued by the criminals. People deny this and state it's crap. It is not. Once we do try and defend ourselves... We are guilty until we prove it, proven innocence, and then we do not get firearms back for a very, very long time. My wife cannot even carry mace. We have massive gang of violence issues, many ghettos in every suburb because of community housing. Many places you don't really want to go alone. Sorry this is long, but the consistency I got from your podcast is what you weren't sure. I will send a link of mass shootings and killings we have had since the disarming. They changed our definition to five dead, not three victims. Victims could have survived, including in the count. Then we had the Monash shooting and Hectorville. They changed it to five, not including the shooter. And then he lists off a whole um, long list of shootings in Australia. He says, the next time an Australian says they've had no mass shootings since 96. And he gives... Since 2000 to 2017, there's been several, and there's been others of a lesser number that have the, been the people the that have been, but not the new definition. People have not used guns. Yeah. Well, he said there's two categories. He says since 2000, uh, and then massacres from 2000 involving other items. So, in other words, everything in the top columns is a shooting. From 2002 to 2017, and then from 2000 to 2009, where he lists 2000's Children's Massacre, 15 burned to death, 2001 North Ride Massacre, 3 stabbed, beaten to death, 2004 Mornington Spear Gun Massacre, 3 killed, Tuwamba Massacre, 3 beaten to death, on and on and on, and then stuff with cars, and this is... Uh, so in other words, even though gun, even though they saw this real strict gun control, they still have these major massacres that are determined as massacres by the Australian government. They have more of them committed by people with guns and people without. 
So I thought that was really good. I thought that was a really yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, Thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and I asked him if I could read it on the show. He said, yeah. And so I thought, you know, it would be a good clarification from somebody that somebody that actually lives there. Right. And well, it sounds like he's describing the kind of situation that a lot of our, um, more right leaning citizens are, are worried about. But again, I don't think that that is the only, um, the only route for gun control that we can or, or should take, or that our, that our country's even considering taking. You know what I mean? Like I'm, I'm all about keeping guns away from crazy people. But sure. If we can do that and leave the, the not crazy people alone, then, and I, I don't think that that would be too hard really. Um, I don't think, I think this is a really extreme example of, um, the opposite and what, what, it, you know, the outcome could be. Right. What's your thoughts on that, Sergio? Well, with, I mean, I'm just thinking in parallel, if, if anything was even of that magnitude was able to even take place and here, uh, the, uh, the, the lag, you know, of, I've heard a lot of, you know, real strict gun control people say, oh, well, you know, it's about eventually getting our society disarmed. And so, you know, there'll be a messy time at first, I guess, where the criminals still have some guns, et cetera. But I mean, if that's Australia, just think about how many guns have been produced and are here in America. I mean, the type of, the that type of lag, that time in between would be... I mean, I couldn't even imagine, you know, oh, yeah, you're, all you're, these law-abiding people being afraid to to protect themselves. And That's the thing. You're not going to keep them out of the hands of – you're going to create another black market like we have for drugs. And we yeah. don't have to ship them in. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> there already is a black market. Yeah, for absolutely. And once, once you have any kind of real stricter gun control, it's going to just increase that because people are going to find their way yeah. – are going to find a way to get their hands on stuff. You know, Serfiel's got a crazy story, but you told me it's something you saw at your right across the street from where you work. Yeah, I've seen a little little eight year old pull a gun on some homeless people. I mean, it was you know, and that's not my only. Unfortunately, that's not my only encounter. You know, being on the, I'm sure that eight year old really went through that extraneous background. Oh yeah, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, but. I mean, and I, I know the arguments about, you know, straw buyers are, and, you know, legal owners having a lot of guns and then being stolen and gun stores being, which a lot of this crime wave right now in town, people think is because the, a lot of these gun stores right outside of the state lines and in the state have been robbed by organized gangs or, you know, and then flooding the streets with them here. Um, I understand those arguments, but uh, I just, it, you know, it's just like the war on drugs. I couldn't, I couldn't even see, you know, any anything like that even being fathomable without just, you know, the criminals just totally running things if they don't already, you know. I just, I, I can't help but think that there's got to be some other reason that we've got a bunch of crazies out there that want to do these kind of things you know i don't know what it is but some deeper like rooted issue that's causing this here that you know where you don't see this kind of stuff maybe other places well hopefully our guests might be absolutely so let's go to the guests i'll have uh some more things to talk about on the other side 
I'm sure we want to discuss our guests as well. So, all right, we'll uh, call it here, and we'll be right back on Conspiracy Normal. All right, guys, we're back on Conspiranormal, and on the line, we have someone that I am uh, very happy to have on. I have followed this man's work for literally years at this point, and Lauren Coleman is a cryptozoologist and a synchromysticist and all kinds of different things. He wears many hats, and Lauren, welcome to Conspiranormal. It's good to be here. It's good to have you. Absolutely. Uh, you have a new book out called Mothman Evil Incarnate. Um, and right. I want to talk a little bit about this about this book, um, which I understand is kind of a sequel or an updating to another book that you had written about Mothman. But uh, Mothman is something that we actually, and as much as I'm into it, um, have actually not talked about on this show very much. So I just want to get like kind of like a brief synopsis of the Mothman, the Mothman, Mothman mythos, what exactly happened in Point Pleasant in 1966. Well, in 1966, a situation occurred where, uh, as it's generally told, there were four individuals. They were all uh, 20-somethings. They were young 20-year-olds. Two couples were in a car in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and they were actually going to a lover's lane area. Uh, it's called TNT for dynamite. It used to be a dynamite storage area during World War II. And they weren't going there to neck or do anything like that. They were actually going there to see if they could see other people, uh, see if there were teenagers they knew. And when they were there, they all of a sudden saw a creature on the ground about six feet tall or a little bit more coming towards them almost in a pigeon duck waddle sort of posture, but it had large wings that went down the side of its body and they saw two glowing eyes because of the headlights of their car. And all of a sudden it flew up in the air and they tried to get out of there very quickly in their car and uh, it chased them down the road. And this was um, November 15th, 1966. Uh, the big bird, as they called it, chased them back to the edge of town. They went to uh, a little diner, and then they went to the sheriff's department, talked to the sheriff. The sheriff and some other law enforcement person came back out with them and actually uh, saw uh, a kind of a, a cloud of dust, and they heard some sounds in the old abandoned buildings, and the sheriff's deputy was too scared to get closer. And that story went around town pretty quickly, so much so that the next night when another 
couple and uh, a woman with her baby saw the creature near their home and it actually went on the roof. And then after that, uh, the newspapers, the local newspapers started uh, telling the stories of these sightings. And uh, they kept coming out, you know, with the stories. And in fact, a copy editor across the river in Ohio started calling this thing Mothman because Batman was a very popular TV show at the time. And uh, so this copy editor named it Mothman and that caught. Well, for months and months, uh, over 200 people were talking about it and 100 uh, were eyewitnesses. And uh, it got to be the mayor's son, a police officer, and, and all kinds of different individuals. The town of Point Pleasant was only about 5,000 individuals, a kind of beaten down riverside town right on the Ohio River. And uh, it got to be the talk of the town. But there was a foreboding. Uh, people were having dreams and, and they felt like something big was going to happen. And it turned out um, exactly 13 months to the day after that first publicized Exciting. Uh, President Johnson, Lyndon Baines Johnson, was in Washington, D.C., turned on the lights for the Christmas tree in Washington, D.C. At the same time he did that, uh, over the Ohio River at Point Pleasant, the Silver Bridge collapsed mm. uh, and killed 46 people. And so people really didn't want to talk about it. I mean, they mourned the dead. They talked about the Silver Bridge collapse and the the tragedy. And uh, yet this writer named John Keel came along and had been reporting all the, all during the time of the sightings. And, and then in 19, well, in 1970, he wrote a chapter in one book. He wrote an article for Flying Saucer Review and then in 1975, he wrote a book called The Mothman Prophecies, which was very popular at the time. It was published by uh, Saturday Review and, and, you know, a good publisher in New York. And I, of course, I was a friend of Keel's. I was investigating these stories. I knew all about it. And then the it all kind of went away. It went away until the book was discovered years later, another edition of it. And in uh, 2001, they filmed uh, The Mothman Prophecies, and it came out in uh, January of 2002. During the time that um, the movie was under production, I coincidentally was writing a book on Mothman because I felt it was time to write a book because nobody had written a book since John Keel's book. And my first book came out uh, at the same time the movie did, this book that we're talking about tonight, which is my second book on Mothman, is very different because the first book was all about the incidents and other creatures and very cryptozoological and, and sort of creature-oriented. The second book that uh, just came out uh, really looks at the evil that's come out of these incidents and the other people that have died and how John Keel's life really went downhill and uh, and also looking at his book. And 
and it's a much more psychological, sociological book. Uh, in fact, I, I'm the one that created the Mothman death list, uh, because, uh, you know, not, we can go into that a little bit more, but, uh, yeah. that's kind of the basics of Mothman. A question about, uh, Mothman, you know, I've seen the famous picture and it, it, it does, you know, it does look like a moth, but is that because of just the name in and of itself, the name that it was given that that's kind of the artist's rendering? I mean, is there any differences between what has come down in like legend as to what people actually saw at the time? Well, it really depends on what you're calling the famous picture, the, the Franzoni uh, drawing. That's the uh, one that, I think. It, yeah. That, that was on the front of High Times, and that was a total creation based upon the name. The real witness drawings, the drawing that was on my first book, and, and some of the more accurate drawings of the Mothman, it looks like a giant bird that, um, that has the eyes in the chest because that's the way people described it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Franzoni uh, drawing and then... Uh, the more recent edition of of Keel's book that uh, was came out in the uh, early 2000s, that really picked up on the name so much so that the town of Point Pleasant, after the movie came out, they had a, a statue commissioned for the square downtown. And it's the Mothman statue that everybody now takes the picture in front of and it looks like a giant insect. Uh, and right. These are all unfortunate because they look nothing like the real Mothman, nothing like what the witnesses said they saw. But it's now the popular image that people have in their heads because they've, uh, uh, you know, the Mothman has become what everybody knows this creature by. But it could have been called the giant owl or the thunderbird or there's lots of native names, but it's just, uh, it, it's one of those things where media really dominated the, um, the legacy that is unfortunately more insect-like than bird-like, which this creature really is. And the movie kind of for, uh, furthered that, um, vision or that, uh, image of it as well too. Because there's a lot of moth well, imagery movie, in the movie. Yeah, there's a lot of moths that talked about, and uh, the quote-unquote expert, which was uh, Leek, which was Keel, spelled backwards. Mm-hmm. Alan Bates played the character that was a professor-like individual. And you also had... Well, let me back up. The So some people, uh, it looks more like a bird or like an owl. Uh, than rather than like an insect-like creature, so there were some attempts to explain it, um, as I think like the sandhill crane. Do you buy any of those attempts to explain it? I think there's anything to that. Okay, so Mothman is apparently trying to sabotage us. Or is it Indrid Cold? Uh, so it's happened before to me. Yeah, it has it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I. I, when the movie came out, I was the publicity person for Sony Screen Gems. So I did 400 radio interviews in a month. 
And several of them had technical problems, and everybody was blaming Mothman and different things. There was even WBOR in Boston, a, a PBS, you know, our station started hearing squawking sounds like a giant mouse, which is the same noise that people reported Mothman had, uh, you know, had uh, given out to eyewitnesses. So really, it was very strange what happens whenever you start talking about some of this. And, you know, obviously other people have had other problems with uh, other phenomena, but I'm not surprised. I mean, there's no thunderstorms here. And so it's not at my end. Yeah. So I don't know what's going on. Neither you can blame here. it on Comcast. That's what I always do. It's Comcast and Microsoft. Oh, the, real, okay. the real, the real, the real evils in the world. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> well, Adam was trying to ask about some of the um, traditional explanations, like the the sandhill crane, or you've got like the you know the great horn owls, and I I wanted to elaborate on that and say that there's um. You know, there's been cases of gigantism in in a lot of the um, various species in the animal kingdom. We know that it happens in humans and uh, other creatures as well. What what are your thoughts on uh, the possibility of any of that? Well, some of the early explanations, such as the sandhill crane, sandhill crane has a little red on its head. So, uh, a local university biologist was interviewed by the newspapers whenever these stories started coming out of Mothman. And the sandhill cranes are too thin, not bulky enough, and it was just a way to try to explain it. Some of the owl explanations, some of the skeptics have written about, they thought it was an owl in a tree and, and different things like that. And owls did not match uh, what was being seen, other than if you think about a giant owl, and I have a, an associate or research associate named Mark Hall who wrote a book on Thunderbirds, and he did a whole chapter in that book on Mothman, and he called it Big Hoot hmm. because he felt that the that these Mothman reports, and they are just during 1966-67, they go back over 150 years, um, but they look like a five-foot, four-foot-tall giant owl uh, and they're actually in the Cuba there are some fossil finds of some giant owls that grew up to be four feet tall and so there is cases of normal species at the you know that may be 10,000 years old or something like that that actually match what Mothman looked like and also in the in the UK because there's there also are, the owl man right yeah the owl man there's also um, you know, some Thunderbird reports from Pennsylvania and from Southern uh, Alaska, even the bat squatch reports from Washington state. Mm-hmm. It seemed to be a combination of a giant winged creature that looked like a Sasquatch also. So there's, there's a whole lore of these creatures and Keel wrote about them. I've written about them. I, I called them the winged weirdies. Uh, because they certainly are there in the literature, in the Fortean literature, even before cryptozoology really started to look at them. And uh, and then there's the winged humans, too. A lot of people think of Mothman as some kind of human-like creature, 
his wings, but that seems to be uh, some of the eyewitnesses who are asked to retell their sightings 20 years later, and all of a sudden, Mothman is growing hands and legs, and, uh, you know, it's almost as if the eyewitnesses are making up new details so that they'll keep the TV documentary people interested. There's some misconceptions about Mothman that are out there, and the one that I can think of that's really big is that Mothman caused the Silver Bridge collapse. But I've never really thought of that as true, that that was more, he he could have been like a harbinger, if even that. There's a couple things going on with Mothman and that whole notion about uh, the title of the book, The Mothman Prophecies, was something that the publisher gave that um, gave that kind of overarching fear and loathing. Keel merely was trying to bring the facts out and share. And if you look at the nudity here from the sightings to the people having the nightmares and, and all of that, and then the bridge collapsing, the story slowly grew its own mythos that Mothman was a banshee-like creature, a harbinger of death, and all of that. And the other part of this that I've really looked at and speculated on, if you look at Bigfoot reports, if you look at sea serpent reports, lake monster reports, you don't have this psychological element of fear and death curse and all of that. Mothman is very unique in that spectrum. You do have a lot of people thinking that Mothman is like, uh, you know, some kind of ghost bird or, uh, you know, banshee, that something is going to happen. We can talk about the sightings in Chicago is certainly giving uh, people a lot of that, that flavor. Um, and so much so that I've had people starting to look at the fact that if the Chicago Mothman reports started in April of of 2017, we possibly, if there's any kind of similarity between the Mothman of Point Pleasant and the Mothman reports coming out of Chicago, we might have a big tragedy coming our way in May of uh, this year, uh, probably in the Chicago area. That's I, there's there's so many facets to the story. I think that's why it's one of my favorites. You know, you've got the um, not just the cryptozoological element, but then you've got that sort of um, mystic, spiritual kind of a, a prophetic side to it. And you've even got like the the man in black stuff. Just all just so much bizarre yeah, I mean, stuff that kind of coalesces in this story. You know, it's it's such a a, a mystery have people from all different fields trying to jump on, uh, you know, with their explanations. For instance, the late Jim Keith, who we all know from his books about black helicopters and other phenomena like that, he had this whole theory about Mothman that it was a giant CIA experiment Mm. in which there was, you know, LSD dropped in the water and, you know, the CIA would just created this experimental 13 months where they were looking at how the residents would react and what kind of hallucinations they were seeing and, and different things like that. Uh, so much so that 
people that want to go off in that tangent can really think that there was something conspiratorial there. And then there's other people uh, branching out from that that maybe Mothman was uh, nothing more than, uh, you know, because there is a lot of military in that area, that it was some other kind of military uh, action going on, uh, some kind of black ops. So, uh, you know, you hear a lot about Mothman that you don't hear about with some other cases, uh, you know, even like what happened in 1958 in Bluff Creek, California, about Bigfoot. You never hear any of those kinds of conspiracy theories really uh, associated with those reports. Uh, Jim Key's theory about it being some kind of experiment. Uh, Nick Redfern has a similar idea about the Flatwoods monster possibly being that as well. Yeah, well, so that's interesting. Redford probably stole it from Keith. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's another weird one. And, and you had Indra yeah. Cold too, because you had this. Uh, what was it? Uh, right, Woody Derenberger in the in the in uh, that. Well, I guess he really wasn't in Point Pleasant, but I think he was not too far from Point Pleasant. And everybody was talking about this weird being that came to him. This was all part of the contact team movement called Indrid Cold, which in the in the film yeah, is well, kind of portrayed as part of the Mothman, but maybe really wasn't. The movie liked to merge all of that stuff together. And right. I mean, Jerry Clark is very clear in all, all of the work you know that he's done in the UFO field that Woody was making up a lot of that stuff um, about Indrid Cole. And that was just kind of to make money and and uh, get attention and all of that. So that's part of the problem with uh, uh, almost turning the Mothman prophecies into an episode of the X-Files, is that you can really throw a bunch of things in there. Yeah. And Sanderson, who did the original investigations of Flatwoods, told me early on, never try to explain one unknown with another unknown. And that's what I think when, once you start throwing in coal and all of these other theories, that it leads you down the yellow brick road and you really can't see where you're ending up except in Oz. So you have to be careful. That's why I like to go back to the cryptozoological. Was there a core animal there that was then causing all of these other people to to get distracted and um, you know really lose their sense of reality almost as they were trying to over explain what was going on. And and another part about the the mythology too is that you know in the film it talks about you know he was seen at Chernobyl or seen at the uh, seen at some other disaster and that that was just made up for the film. Yeah, that was definitely, and in my new book, I, I really deal with that. And I uh, would appear in a lot of, well, I had to appear more than Keel because Keel had a cataract operation. They left the stitches in his eye. Yeah. So I had to pinch it because he was really uh, sick a lot when the movie came out. But what really they did, and it was really a disservice to the whole Mothman story, they created these, you know, Houston, Galveston, uh, Chernobyl, all of these stories saying that Mothman was seen there before the disasters. None of that happened. And then what they created, uh, and people that buy the special DVD of the Mothman prophecies, 
get the hour-long documentary, The Search for Mothman, that both Keel and I appear in. And they put in that documentary as real all of these other disasters. So for the next two years, Keel and I, every time we were interviewed or had to talk about Mothman, we had to say, no, that stuff was myth. That stuff was made up. And you guys are, you know, kind of going down down the drain whenever you're <laughs> investigating those stories because they didn't happen. So that was that was a sad part of it because the movie uh, had the possibility and it actually did bring back Mothman into the consciousness of at least uh, Point Pleasant and a lot of other Fordians and cryptozoologists. It definitely helped Point Pleasant out, uh, put it on the map so that, you know, they bring some tourism in and much like Roswell, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, the Mothman prophecies coming out in 2002 saved that city because when I went there, you know, before the movie came out to re-interview eyewitnesses, meet with Linda Scarberry and Marcella Bennett, some of the high-profile witnesses that were still in hiding, uh, that town was a bunch of storefronts that were abandoned and empty. Uh, the highest point of the population of Point Pleasant was about 6,000 people right before the Mothman was seen. And it's the population has dropped below 4,000 now. And the business really, the business in that town was so dead. Uh, if it wasn't now for the Mothman Museum that uh, Jeff Wamsley, I just talked to the other day, and they've bought in a whole slew of those empty buildings, and they're leaving those other businesses that are in there for now. But they're going to make the Mothman Museum twice the size it is now because mm. that Mothman is the major industry now of Point Pleasant. <laughs> that's so, that's, it's interesting. Uh, let's talk about some of these deaths because this, I, I mean, that, that whole section in the book, I mean, you do a fabulous job of connecting all these different people's deaths to them. Of course, you know, there's like a hundred of them, so we can't talk about every single one. But what are some that kind of stand out in your mind that are rather unusual or just a strange synchronicity that occurred? Well, there's a lot. Of course, there's the initial 46 of the people that uh, fell when the Silver Bridge did. And a lot of those were relatives of eyewitnesses of Mothman. What I started noticing when the movie came out was as opposed to the eyewitnesses themselves, it sometimes was a brother, it was family members, and the Mothman death curse really quickly started touching the lives of those people around an eyewitness, around the director, like the executive director of the movie died. He was an older man, but he died uh, soon after the movie came out. And the one that really shocked me was Mark Pellington, who did Arlington Road. Mm-hmm. another really awesome conspiracy movie and had been well-known for MTV rock videos. He did the Mothman prophecies and um, within a few months, his 42-year-old wife dies mysteriously. 
just really quickly and really bizarrely in which uh, it was some mystery disease. And it was very similar to me to uh, Betty uh, Heyer, who was the, the reporter in the Ohio newspaper, John Keel and Betty uh, would, oh, Mary, Mary, I'm sorry, Mary Heyer, who was always going out doing investigations of the Mothman, of UFOs and stuff like that. She died 26 months to the day after the bridge collapsed. And she died at 52, which was still a relatively young age, even in the 1960s. And uh, uh, Freed, Freddie Freed, who was an NBC white paper guy, all of a sudden in his New York hotel room that he would use uh, when he was away from home and working for NBC, his maid comes into his room and he's dead on his bed you know, mm. very mysteriously. So there's these people over and over again, we're getting, you know, even Jim Keith that we were talking about a minute ago, he goes to uh, burning man. He falls off the stage of burning man is trans a routine knee operation to repair his knee. And he dies on the operating table. Uh, so and I, I really didn't mention it in the book. But during the time I was writing this book, my mother died, which is, you know, kind of expected at 80 years old. Mm. But then my younger brother died. Oh, man. Uh, and so, you know, you just find out whenever you're working on a book about death curses, I guess. But uh, it is just amazing to me how many people. But I, what I looked at uh, almost immediately whenever I started catching on to the fact that people were dying like flies was that uh, there's lots of different movie death curses like uh, The Exorcist or Poltergeist or things like that. But then you look a little bit deeper into those curses and it's usually four people or six people. And here uh, I was able to find 80 people. And then by the time I was writing the book, it was 100 people. And there's even more than that uh, that are coming to mind after the book has been published. Um, wow. So it's just kind of frightening that it's <clears> really, <throat> uh, that really evil uh, Mothman. And you're right. It's not so much that Mothman causes any of this. It certainly seems to be a projection, a manifestation, a banshee-like aura that is around uh, the Mothman. It's certainly hard to write off that kind of number. Yeah, it is. This brings me to the subject of synchromysticism. And because we, I communicated with you a little bit about this. Um, and you said that this, that this kind of feeds, this is, this book is kind of a crossover between the two different worlds that you kind of inhabit. And then one of those, you're, you're best known for the cryptozoology stuff, but you also have a lot about this synchromysticism and, uh, uh, this this whole other blog, this whole other world that you talk about, and this to me is like the really fascinating material because it, this is a, this is very much like kind of like a synchromysticism around this event. So, what is the concept of synchromysticism? Well, it's it's looking for meaningful coincidences and through film, through event and events and. Uh, of course, 
I'm very interested in the name game, too, the names of places, the names of certain individuals. Even John Keel was one of the early people that started looking at UFO witnesses. He said that uh, the name Reeves uh, kept showing up more than what most people would, uh, you know, most people would consider UFO witnesses should be named Johnson or Smith or Jones, but that's not true. It's it's Reeves, and you start looking at how often UFO witnesses or contactees or certain cases in ufology are named Reeves, uh, and it's just it does come up a lot. But then uh, Jim Brandon, who wrote Weird America at the same time I was writing Mysterious America, uh, he and I started looking at the name Fayette, uh, Lafayette and Fayette, which is, of course, uh, a French translation. It's it's the little fairy or the little enchantment, and that's a name that comes up a lot. Interesting. And so there's this underlying harmonic connection between certain names and Masonic history and and the even Egyptian Masonic history with uh, you know assassinations like. Uh, Martin Luther King being killed in Memphis, which is a, a Egyptian city. So it it just kind of starts connecting to the whole universe, and we don't know what the answer is, but we are looking for patterns. And that's called onomatology. Yeah, you can use almost any of those names and pronounce them even better than I do. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for for me, this ties a lot into like the, the just the general power of belief, and I think that that ties back to the um, the Mothman prophecy stuff a lot too. Where I think that if you, if you get enough people on board, and you know enough people with like uh, maybe a negative idea or a negative. Uh, atmospheric kind of emotion rolling that maybe negative stuff starts to happen or you know our consciousness kind of starts to self-prophesize things that are going to happen or cause things are going to happen or that that, 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 i think that's more the mystic side to to that whole whole ordeal yeah i i think that it's intriguing to me i mean Having been in the field now for almost 60 years, it gives me a longitudinal view. And uh, synchronisticism really doesn't come about until the year 2006. Uh, A bunch of thinkers, mostly in the Pacific Northwest, start putting together conferences and blogs and stuff like that. But I look back to the 1920s and 30s, and then after Fort uh, really started noticing Synchronicity and Young and and all of those uh, folks. Then you have Fortians studying Fortian uh, phenomena, and you get some of the same things that he was looking at uh, special names or how names would often, uh, you know, collect the data, collect the phenomena in a, a weird sort of way, so that all of these. Millennials or Generation X or Generation Z seem already primed and ready to go so that when 9-11 happened, people started noticing, oh my goodness, 
there was lots of precursors to this. And you have somebody like Joe Alexander uh, doing documentaries saying that uh, Back to the Future, the movie Back to the Future, had a lot of clues that something was going to happen on 9-11. So it just, it, it became part of the internet and media and movies in a way that could have been possible when all we were doing was waiting for a letter in our mailbox to be uh, to give us more clues about all of this phenomena. Like a conspiracy theorist would look at that and say, well, they, the, the Illuminati or somebody planned this way, way in advance. But you're looking at it in a completely different way of saying that this is more like an event happens and it like the... <clears throat> It's almost like the ripples go forward, and they can also go backward in time. Right. It's more of a collective consciousness. Yeah. Like a glitch in the matrix. Yeah. Right. And I think that in many ways, that's why you have um, a setup, an acceptance that there is a reality to the Mandela effect. I mean, I think that's, I don't know if you saw this season's. Uh, X Files. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Humorous episode of that, in which it was the Bingala effect, and I mean that's so crazy to think that that. But I have actually talked to people that their experience of reality was remembering something different than than what you look on Wikipedia and find out it is. You know, so. So there's something strange that feels like it's going on sometimes. And is that a pattern? Is that conspiracy? Is it, you know, a harmonic reality? I I don't know, but it's sure uh, interesting. It's definitely interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you, uh, when were you uh, introduced to James Shelby Downard? Was it while you were doing correspondence with... um while you're writing uh, your, your book and, and while uh, Weird America was being written also? I think definitely during that time. Um, it's a, it's an unknown part of my history and Jim uh, Brandon's history that um, I, I think it was 1978. And in 1978 was my second book creatures of the outer edge. And then I was moving towards gathering all of my material in 1983 for mysterious America. And Jim was writing rebirth of pan, which was 83. So we, we had the synchronicity of, of having similar dates. Well, he was in Illinois and I was, uh, I was in Massachusetts and we were corresponding. I'd been corresponding from, with Keel since 1969 or so, or the late 60s. But Jim and I got together and we said, well, you know, I did, he said, I, he did Weird America and I did uh, Mysterious America. And that was kind of one of those coincidences. Right. <laughs> we decided, we decided to do a documentary pilot together. Uh, and, uh, we did this documentary and it mostly had different things like the Bridgewater Triangle in it 
and uh, other strange phenomena. And he he narrated it, and I did all of the visuals, and I had a, a friends that were filmmakers, and I was doing filmmaking. And it never went anywhere, but uh, I went to Illinois to meet him, and we got to know each other better and better. And uh, we just, and that's when the whole downward stuff came up, and I started just appreciating the guy. I never met him, but uh, Jim Brandon did, and that's when he did his uh, serious rising material in 74 and 75, I believe it was. So, uh, you know, and the, the killing of the king ritual and all of that stuff, and uh, Jack Parsons, there was lots of different material that was floating around. And as I, I mentioned in my new res- review of the Serious Rising, I think a lot of people that are doing this kind of conspiratorial connecting assassinations to synchromysticism don't really realize the whole history uh, starts way back then in the late 60s. Uh, it just didn't, all of a sudden in the 90s, people became interested in JFK and RFK and Martin Luther King. A lot of us uh, have been studying assassinations for a long time. In fact, uh, my interest in cryptozoology really started at the same time I was interested. I was a, a Lincoln assassination nut before Kennedy was okay. killed. And I was uh, very interested in the Civil War and how that assassination had an impact. And I knew from way long ago that assassinations almost always are conspiracies. And yet it's the mainstream government that tries to say it was one person because it's easier to explain and move on historically. Right. <laughs> so, so it was very easy for me to, in my cosmos to at least hear that there was a, a ritual of killing of the King. Uh, and certainly downward, uh, even though you, you have to have your hip boots on whenever you wade into downer stuff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I still think there's things to be learned from other people's crazy theories because they're trying to communicate in the best way they can on amazing discoveries that they've found in looking at the world different than everybody else does. Absolutely. And the serious rising material just got, I guess, is it technically re-released? I suppose. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. The the old cassettes or reel to reels that were floating around. Wow. Don't really exist in a way that people could use them anymore. So what what's been done, and it just came out uh, in a new CD, in which it's a remastered CD. It has a new introduction to try to put it in the context of 2018. Sacred mysticism didn't exist as a field of study back whenever Jim Brandon and Downard were having their conversations. So, uh, you know, it's really a, a new way to look at it for new generations. 
And and to clear it up, what it is is this is a uh, these are taped conversations between Jim Brandon and James Shelby Downard. Um, that's probably most famously mentioned in Robert Anton Wilson's uh, Cosmic Trigger book as being one of the uh, the King Kill thirty three, the introduction of the King Kill thirty three theory and. Uh, uh, Wilson said it was one of the, I forgot the exact quote, but the most uh, s- strange conspiracy theories of all time. Right. And uh, it is mentioned in uh, those few copies that people have of uh, Weird America that are still around from the 1970s. Of uh, Because there's many, as I know from Jim, there's many people illegally uh, reprinting it in Asia. And a lot of if you go to Amazon and try to buy a copy of Weird America, Jim Brandon's not getting any of that money. But uh, oh, really? You know, it does have a lot. Of, yeah, it has a lot about Downard in that book. The other one is, of course, Adam Go Rightly. He has, mm-hmm. uh, you know, done the biography of uh, James Shelby Downard, and that's another way you're reading about. JSB, as we call him. Yeah, we actually, uh, I did a show real early, because um, this is like episode 206, and we did episode 33. I made sure to do that for uh, the King Kill material when I had <laughs> Go Rightly On about that. So, um, Good one. Good and, one. And, then, and then he was the 33rd person to like my Facebook page back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> There's your synchronicity. Right. Yeah, he did that on purpose. <laughs> so this would uh, yeah. this probably be a good segue like, to uh, to talk about your your copycat um, blog and and kind of it's really timely because of all the uh, all the big massacres that have gone on recently. Um, maybe you can tell them the audience a little bit about that. Right. Well, and. Um... 1987, I wrote a book called The Suicide Clusters, and Suicide Clusters was uh, not accepted by any mainstream mental health people or media people. So uh, once once the years started going by and people actually agreed with me that there were suicide clusters going on, then in 19 uh, in 2004. Yeah, 2004, I wrote a book called The Copycat Effect because nobody would believe me that the copycat effect was a prominent media-driven behavior contagion phenomena. So once I proved that, and uh, I, I started writing a blog to rub it in everybody's face that all these things were being copied all the time. And of course, Aurora, Colorado, the the big copycat thing. First of all, there was Columbine in 99 and that really jump-started all of the school shootings. And then you had, uh, James Holmes and the Batman killing, you know, uh, the dark Knight movie rises. And that got people really on the same page that there's something going on. And so much so that actually you turn on CNN and, uh, at the bottom of the screen, every news is breaking news. It, it doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> you know, everything is breaking news because the whole media is driven on 
adrenaline now. Uh, it, it used to be there might be one or two school shootings a month, and now it's like one a week, two a week. And that's awful. It's just an awful phenomenon. And uh, I actually changed the name of my blog from the copycat effect to Twilight Language, uh, even though it's still the copycat addresses, copycat effect, you know, deep down. But the Twilight Language is trying to look at the, the phenomena behind uh, all of the school shootings. And now we have vehicle rammings and workplace violence, and it just goes on and on. It just doesn't stop. And you can have things like Las Vegas, where 40, where 52 people can be uh, you know, killed, and people forget about it a week later. Uh, that's what's kind of interesting about Parkland. Is Parkland, uh, of course, Parkland, Florida, reminds me of Parkland Hotel. Hospital where JFK was taken. Yeah, <laughs> and there's a whole, whole there are whole name games there. But uh, because of the student activism, as someone said, and I wrote this in the, my blog, uh, the this generation of graduating seniors and some juniors in Florida really discovered their Vietnam, and Parkland has as a social movement stayed alive. Although, you know, having people uh, say they're going to stick a hot poker up David Hogg's butt <laughs> and creating, creating all kinds of distractions from what these want to do as far as uh, change, the, change the conversation about school shootings. But uh, we'll see where it goes. Uh, a lot of people forget that all of the protests for Vietnam really had many years of frustration. And there was also many years of people dying by suicide uh, as far as uh, self-emulations that occurred during the Vietnam War. And right. I hope it doesn't get to that point with uh, protests for school shootings, but... I think it's going to be bad, and I, I've always warned in my blog about the end of April, and uh, there's that special week in April starting about the the 14th of April through, the, you know, the 20-somethings, and you get Virginia Tech, you get Columbine, you get all kinds of Oklahoma very City. violent, pardon me? Oklahoma City, Waco. Yeah, yeah, Waco. Yeah, all of those that are uh, right wing, uh, as well as school shootings and other places. So, um, and it all started. I mean, you can go back to the Revolutionary War, and uh, it's it's my sense that it's the danger zone in the calendar that, that the media doesn't really want to look at, and they don't want to talk about, and uh, it just goes on and keeps happening year after year. And you mentioned Vietnam, so, uh, April 30th is when we really pulled out of Vietnam. That was the end of Vietnam. Yeah. And, um, you know, while Pergus knocked, yeah. you know, that <laughs> that that's like April 30th to May 1st. So. Yeah, yeah. So Helicopters we, landing on... Mm-hmm. 
What do you think the uh, the media's role in all of this is? Because I, I always equate it all back to like in the 70s, there was this epidemic of, um, I was talking to Sergio about this earlier, like streakers trying to get on, on TV. And it, 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 it kind of exploded for a while until the news organizations sort of got together and they were like, okay, if somebody does this, we're just going to pan away and not mention it and ignore it. And without that... Um, publicity it, it fades away how much do you think that kind of stuff plays into to all of these things as far as school shootings and mass shootings and and just other things plaguing our society in general these days yeah i, I mean i i definitely think that if you have a, a culture that reinforces violence through guns and then you add this layer on top of it in which the news media wanted to report on school shootings by creating wall to then it certainly reinforced it. And I actually do in my book, The Copycat, talk about that example of streaking or suicides, cluster suicides. If you'll notice at every baseball game where there's any kind of streaker or violence or anything like, you know, like a fight in the stands, they don't show it on TV. And yet there's something like six to 12 cameras live all the time at a baseball game. Yeah. And yet because they don't show it, it tends to stop. Uh, therefore in the seventies, there was this, uh, very short lived phenomena of people throwing batteries at some of the baseball players, but it disappeared because it wasn't reinforced. There was, you know, heavy uh, consequences for the batteries throwers, but there also was no reinforcement of it. Right. And, and same thing with streakers. And in fact, I point out in the book at one time uh, in Vienna, Austria, there was people that were jumping off of subway, uh, you know, areas onto the tracks, trying to kill themselves and actually um, dying on the tracks. So what the Austria did is they put a ban on talking about that totally in all of the newspapers. And newspapers was the way that people were getting their news back then, not so much in TV. And then you also look at some of the newspaper strikes, and you'll see the suicide rate went down during those times. So the media has been very much a part of the copycat effect. Um, after Columbine, there were 400 incidents in the next month of bomb threats, school shooting threats, and different things like that. Whereas in Canada, there was one shooting incident and the whole media across Canada didn't talk about the shooter, didn't talk about the shooting. They briefly mentioned it in one local newspaper but all of the media and and when I wrote my book Copycat Effect, it was Simon and Schuster, mainstream publisher in New York City. I I got one review in a North American newspaper, the Boston Globe, that absolutely tore it apart as saying the media had nothing to do with any of these shootings or anything. And wow. And yet, 
all across Canada. I was interviewed by the Canadian Broadcasting Network, Toronto newspapers, uh, you know, Alberta are open to looking at their part of the phenomena, that if they broadcast for two straight days about a phenomena, a week later, there was going to be another school shooting, yep. which is what happened in the United States. Yep. yep. Couldn't agree more. Mm-hmm. You also talk about in that, in the uh, copycat effect in that, oh, the Twilight Language blog, uh, you talk a lot about the origins of names and not just place names, but people's names and what they mean as well. And, and is, is right. there some meaning to that? Well, there's, there's people's names have a lot to do with Chuck Shepard, who is the one that uh, really started looking at the middle name of Wayne, like John Wayne Gacy. Uh-huh. Uh, and he really found, found a lot of murderers or a lot of people who were accused of the middle name Wayne. Uh, and it was almost like a black mark. And then, and then you know, back to Keel uh, and Reeves with the uh, UFO names. But then you start looking at a lot of Brandon, Jim Brandon stuff, and what I've written about is, you know, Washington or Shelby, uh, a lot of names connected to Freemasonry. And not to mm. say that this is caused by Masons, right? but it's intriguing that the harmony of the names, the harmonics of the names tend to go through uh, some of the crimes, some of the killings, whatever, or even, uh, you know, you look deeper, like Aurora, Colorado, that's really Red Dawn. You have Colorado and Aurora. Aurora is the Dawn, Colorado is the Red. And so that kind of killing in the movie theater tended to really be a red dawn event violence and a new wave of copycats because you did get a lot of movie and uh, other violence copycats yeah so um it's there over and over again it's just a matter of looking at it most people uh in one of my early books in mysterious america i talked about how most people drive down roads they don't even think about the history of the name of the mm-hmm. road they're on, let alone their own history. Uh, myself, uh, being a Coleman, Coleman is the ancient perceivers of the ley lines. So I don't know if it was my name or whatever, but I'm I'm kind of cursed to always look a little bit deeper at what's going on. So does that make you the uh, successor to James Shelby Downard, like Brandon Jim Brandon says? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, I don't think it was that way. I mean, I, in many ways, I I had, I had listened to a serious rising, and I, yeah. I kind of have lost track that I've actually been doing much more than Brandon and Downard, uh, you know, just because I, I do it so much, you know, doing the blog so often about names that, you know, some of those guys did a book, well, Brandon only did two books plus the talking book, whereas I think I'm up to my 30 or 40th book. So it's just I don't even think about wow. it anymore. I just have so much inside of me I have to share. 
<laughs> Have you beaten Dick Redford in the amount of books? <laughs> no, probably not because I don't steal as much stuff as he did. I'm, I'm, no, I'm kidding. Again. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm just working up to in Minnesota in, uh, I think it's October. We were both, we're both going to be at Paracon. Okay, and we thought we were both going to have an hour to present, and now they've made us present together. So I, I figure I've already got to start, you know, harassing him. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Take control. <laughs> His new book about Slender Man was really, really interesting. Uh, if you've had, I don't know if you've had a chance to read it, but that's some interesting stuff. Well, my wife is in the book because she she wrote articles for uh, Forty and Times on paranoia. Okay. Paranoid. So uh, my wife was there before uh, Redford was. Ah, okay. <laughs> Little competition. <laughs> Sergio. Well, competition is always good. Oh yeah, for, absolutely. It, it keep it keeps us all fresh, and we're all good friends, and we all share back and forth. So it's it's what we do. I I actually had a Men in Black episode, so I. I was in his Men in Black uh, book. Oh, what happened there? What was your episode with the Men in Black? Uh, let's see. I was, uh, I was I was living in Illinois. It was, it must have been, well, the dates of the book, but it's something like uh, 1972 or so. I was doing an investigation on the Enema Bandit. Ever heard of that? It was the somebody Enema that, uh, Bandit? No, I've not heard of that. Yeah, yeah. It would go tie up co-eds, and uh, the one co-ed that was a little more, how can I say this politically correct, the the one co-ed that was a little more plump than any other, he would give enemas to. What? And so, <laughs> yeah. So I... Okay. And you know, what happened back, back in the 60s and 70s when I, I was investigating this different phenomena, there was no internet. There was no USA Today. What I, how I had to investigate these was I had to individually write newspapers. Yeah. So I was doing this. I was uh, actually writing, you know, long letters saying I'm investigating this, going to write an article. Because I, I never, at the point I've, that I was investigating, there was no description of the person so I was trying to figure out, was this some kind of entity? Was it a Fortean phenomena? What was going on? Was it a weird crime? So all of a sudden, one night, this was very late at night, you know, maybe seven thirty, eight o'clock, you never expect anybody to come around then in Decatur, Illinois. And my first wife and I were sitting there, and all of a sudden the door, you know, there's a knock on the door, and a guy comes to you know, he's there and he, he says, hi, I'm Detective Applegate. And I need to ask you some questions about the Enema Bandit. <laughs> well, that was spooky enough. How in the world would he know I was writing letters about the Enema Bandit? So, so I invite him in and he's one of these, you know, dark suit, tall and thin, kind of breathing funny. And says, oh, you shouldn't write anybody anymore for Men in Black. I mean, for um, Enema Bandit. 
material. And I said, well, why? Well, one of the, you know, MOs of the Enema Bandit is that he collects newspaper articles. <laughs> so I sort of like, wow, I'm collecting newspaper articles. I'm a, I'm a suspect. <laughs> well, you might be. So I just keep talking and talking and, you know, the detective and all of this. So I, um, you know, then he leaves and I say, well, maybe I'll quit doing that case. (laughs) I call the Decatur Police Department the next day and say, could I speak to Detective Applegate? And uh, there is no Detective Applegate. Oh. And then then it didn't take me too long. To uh, watch the movie, I, I watched the movie Damned Yankees and find out that the character named Applegate—that's a really well-known pseudonym—and it just wow, it kind of like wow, what's, what's going on? So I told Nick all about this, and he, he thought it was worthy of his book uh, because it, it turned out I could never track down Applegate. I never could track down, and it was years later that I guess they caught the. The enema bandit. It was some, uh, you know, he was a perverse criminal and uh, certainly into that stuff. But uh, it's just one of those things. <laughs> wow. John Keel, by the John Keel was very worldly, more than this little boy from little, you know, 20 year old something from Illinois. He said, Oh, you don't know about enemas and enema bandits. And he said, <laughs> You don't even know about yellow rain. Yellow Rain? What's that, John? He was a big New York City writer, and I was just a Illinois investigator. I didn't know what Yellow Rain was or Enema Bandits. <laughs> wow. He told me all about a new a magazine out there called Screw. I mean, I didn't. <laughs> Further your education. <laughs> Further, I'm just longer a naive Midwesterner. <laughs> you know, it, sometimes things happen. <laughs> well, uh, Lord, it's been a real pleasure having you on. Um, where can people get this book and contact you? And also, you know, uh, just a little bit about the cryptozoology museum that you maintain up there. Right. Well, the book, of course, is uh, the Mothman Moth Evil Incarnate is, is available all over there are even some bricks and mortar stores I, I hear that still exist, huh. but uh, most people get to get their books online and even then Kindle and all of that stuff. So it's an ebook as well as a printed book. Uh, and then of course I, I um, founded the international cryptozoology museum in 2003 and we've moved that uh, bigger and bigger places. We actually built a whole new museum in 2016, and we're at an entertainment venue uh, development in Portland, Maine, called Thompson's Point. So if people go to cryptozoologymuseum.com, cryptozoologymuseum is all one word, .com, uh, they have all kinds of information there. I have my books on sale at the nonprofit museum to give all of the profit to the museum. Uh, Not for me, but that's a way for people to get autographed copies. Uh, There's also a bookstore in the museum that people buy stuff for, for themselves. 
And then uh, September 1st and 2nd of this year, we're going to have a big international cryptozoology uh, co- uh, conference in which books and speakers and vendors and all of those good kind of things will be there. So I hope people uh, find it interesting enough to visit us in Maine. A lot of people, we get visitors from all over. Even we had two individuals come in and they got to the door of the museum last week and they actually were from New Mexico. And they were so out of breath, I thought they'd walked there. (laughs) And then they said, they said, Thank goodness we finally made it to Canada. So Maine is still in the United States, folks. And so you can come, not have to have your passport to get into Maine and then see the museum in Portland. It's a lot of fun. Our newest exhibit is Cryptoscanology. So yes, that's been very popular. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lauren. We're so glad to have you. Uh, we're going sure, to close the line. We're going to close out this section. Stay on the line for us, and guys, we'll be right back on Conspiratorial. <laughs> So in the interest of connecting more with our listeners, I want to share a little story about my morning. Uh, Please. Yeah, I'm getting older, as we all are. You know, and yesterday I got home from work. Well, on the way home from work, I, I stopped at Walgreens, which is like a block away, you know, and did my shopping, got my toilet paper, whatever I was there for, drove the block home, stepped out of my car. I was fine at Walgreens, got home, got in my car and stood up and my left knee just exploded in pain. Don't know why. I didn't step on it funny. I did not fall. I didn't bang it on anything, and it just it just hurt. I couldn't bend it. I couldn't twist it. So I staggered to the house, got to my recliner, and sat down and tried to just relax for the evening and take it easy on my knee because I don't know what I did to it, but I did something. And it, it hurt all evening long. It hurt all night long. Like, I was tossing and turning all last night. And I, I finally got up this morning. I... You know, I I could put weight on it, but I couldn't move it. I couldn't like bend it or twist it or anything. So I I went through my normal morning routine. When I made coffee, got a cup, went outside, smoked a cigarette, and then went to the bathroom like I do every day. And this was the most excruciating experience I've had in months. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna be frank here. I was sitting on the toilet doing my thing. I could not get off the toilet. I couldn't your stand this doing your business. doing my business. I couldn't stand back up. And cause my knee hurt so bad that I just, I could not get out of my sitting position. So I was like clawing at the windowsill, trying to pry myself back into a standing position. And it got to the point where I almost like called out for Alyssa to help me stand up off of the oh, toilet. Man, I'm going to put Which, you in a nursing home, dude. <laughs> can you imagine if I had if I had not if I had to get Alyssa's help to get off of the toilet? 
to continue my, like going throughout my Would day. Would you have felt emotionally just bad about that? Not so bad. Saying? Only because she would never let me live it down. Ever. That's true. For the rest That's of true. my life. She'd be like, you remember that time, Robbie? <laughs> yeah. You remember? That's so, <laughs> <laughs> my Alyssa impression. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> New listeners of the show might not remember when she used to be on the mic, but I think it's pretty accurate. Yeah, that was good. That was good. Man, it's, you know, it's just getting old, dude. It is, and now it's fine. Like yeah. less than 24 hours later, it's totally back to normal. Well, it's kind of like our internet in here. I mean, that's kind of like how it does, <laughs> apparently. We, we, we've had to switch to the, uh, to the phone, uh, to the phone, to hotspot, like the last two shows. I don't know what's going on, how it's so damned unreliable. Yeah. But it is what it is, I guess. I don't really know oh. what to say. <laughs> Yeah, I'm totally okay with equating Comcast to a horrible bathroom experience, <laughs> or, or to a bad knee. Yeah. Well, like we like I said before to you earlier, it's probably the all the times you jumped off cliffs when you were younger. Yeah, and, and snowboarding and skateboarding. It, and, it's all catching up with you, man. Oh yeah, it's just that it's that life, you know. Life, life gets you in the end. <laughs> What'd you guys think of that interview? Oh man, that was awesome. Like. It, I thought going into this, I thought, you know, Lauren Coleman, we're going to probably just talk Bigfoot or something. You know, I, I knew he had a, big, a, a new book about Mothman, so I, you know, I figured it would be heavy on that. But I was not aware of his, um, the, the sink or stuff, the, um, oh, yeah. the internet blogs, any, any of his dealings with any of that kind of like side of our universe. So that, that was really, really cool. Well, you know, I read the book um, and, you know, primarily a lot of it, it's a very short book. But a lot of it is in the the appendix. Uh, the second appendix in the book is just that Mothman death list thing, and that was really interesting. So that kind of led into the whole synchromystical stuff. And Serfiel, you know, he bought the Serious Rising CD. Yeah, when and, you, and when you first sent me the uh, the link to the Twilight Language blog, like, yeah, I'm gonna have this guy on, and I was like, oh man, I've been checking out that blog for over a decade, and I. I didn't know about his. Uh, I didn't know that was him or too much about him, and I didn't really know about his uh, cryptozoological stuff. So, yeah, it it was really cool how it just kind of ran through all these different subjects and tied them all in. It seems like with the synchromystic stuff. So it was it was a really really interesting interview. And he's tied in with a lot of other people that we talked to, yeah, like Adam Gorelli and Greg Bishop. And all those guys, and you know, and he knew John Keel, who Keel was pretty instrumental in a lot of the kind of weirder aspects of the UFO phenomenon and what that all meant. And you know, Keel, I mean, reading Mothman prophecies for me, I, I saw the you know, I was familiar with the Mothman case of the Jerome Clark book, but I read, uh, I actually saw the movie first and not knowing some of the stuff that the book, the movie was based on, um, I started reading John Kill's Mothman Prophecies. And that is an extremely strange book. Kill got really, really, like, obsessed with everything that was going on in the moth, with the whole Mothman milieu around Point Pleasant. Right. And then, like I said, there was just all this weirdness, you know, UFO contactee stuff, Men in Black, uh, and actually, you know, in Point Pleasant, there's uh, the Low Hotel, Motel, 
that is there. And it's actually one of the most famously haunted motels in West Virginia. Really? And not too far from there is where the Flatwoods monster happened. So this is like a lot of weird stuff about West Virginia. I don't know exactly what that is, but there's some weirdness there. And, but Kill, you know, he would talk about in uh, the book about going back to New York City. Uh, and ta- he also talked about how he would just get these phone calls in the middle of the night and people following him, much like kind of like gang stalking kind of stuff. Uh, he also talked a lot of this really weird events that happened on Long Island, which made me think back to like Amityville and all the things that happened there. So th- there's just certain spots in the world that are just strange. Yeah. <clears throat> you know? So um, I wanted to share something with you guys. Yeah. I, I've been watching X-Files, right? Uh-oh. Ah, me too. And I've been watching it on, uh, I've been watching it on Hulu. And Hulu makes you watch commercials, even though you are um, you pay a certain amount. I don't know why they make you watch commercials, but <laughs> I ran across this one, and you will you'll be wondering why I'm playing this until you hear the. Uh, this is a commercial for for Belsamra, which we are not uh, advocating. Belsamra, <laughs> not a sponsor in any way. They're not a, they're not a sponsor. But listen to the listen to the list of side effects as this goes on. Despite all of the things you do to get a good night's sleep, it can feel as if they get undone while you lie there, restless. So, so reassuring. Maybe you should talk to your doctor about Belsamra. Maybe you should. Prescription medicine for adults with insomnia who have trouble falling or staying asleep. Balsamra is an FDA-approved sleep aid that works differently because it targets and inhibits the action of orexin, a neurotransmitter in your brain that is believed to play a central role in keeping you awake. You don't need In clinical that. studies versus placebo, Balsamra helped patients fall asleep faster and sleep more throughout the night. Do not take Balsamra if you have narcolepsy. When taking Balsamra, don't drive or operate heavy machinery until you feel fully awake. Walking, eating, driving, or engaging in other activities while asleep without remembering it the next day have been reported. Belsamra should not be taken together with alcohol. Abnormal behaviors may include aggressiveness, confusion, agitation, or hallucinations. The temporary inability to move or talk, known as sleep paralysis, for up to several minutes while you are going to sleep or waking up, and temporary leg weakness have also been reported. In depressed patients, worsening depression, including risk of suicide, may occur. Alcohol may increase these risks. Side effects include next-day drowsiness. So if you're looking to get more sleep, keep doing the things that help. But also, talk to your doctor about Belsamra. Okay. (laughs) Sleep paralysis. Oh, God. um, You know, I I don't know. I'm good. You You might drive your car without remembering it or have sleep paralysis. So what? I don't see the big deal. Yeah. Um, well, th- two things, not remembering what you're doing because you're essentially sleepwalking yeah. and they, they actually talk about, you know, there's actually things people talk about when, you know, people have murdered their yeah, spouse. Yeah, they gave you a nice little because, alibi right there. Right? Because, I was just taking yeah. <laughs> because they were actually sleepwalking. Uh, you know, there's a movie called, uh, I think it's called Side Effects. That came out a few years ago, 
that uh, kind of deals with that. If it's a think it's like a Steven Soderbergh movie, you should check that out. Uh, <laughs> kind of deals with that kind of similar thing. And but also the sleep paralysis, it causing sleep paralysis. But this Belsabra sounds like a good time, man. Like oh, not remembering driving your car. <laughs> Like, it's so casual. Like, mm-hmm. hey, you might run to the store and back in mm-hmm. middle of the night, but it's okay. You might run over somebody. Yeah. Um, you know, you might kill somebody and not remember it ever actually happening. And sleep paralysis every morning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As you're waking up. Yeah. So you can you can contact uh, spiritual entities <laughs> while, you, while you're on Balsamra. <laughs> <laughs> Dark shadowy spiritual entities hovering above you while you cannot move, being stuck in between dimensions. And you can't get out. But at least you're not going to have insomnia anymore. Oh, oh my God. How is this? How is stuff like that approved, dude? How is that approved by the FDA? Yeah, what, what's the function like, of the honestly, FDA? <laughs> oh, my God. And I, I, was, I was watching this video of some girl that she was talking about uh, how... Balsamra really helped her and her like they said not to take it if you have narcolepsy but she was taking it for her narcolepsy can you imagine I mean if if this is all stuff that's on the market what about like weaponized stuff that's off the market like some MK Ultra type of stuff mm-hmm. like what about what if there is some kind of weaponized medicine that will induce sleep paralysis in people. That's like, that's torture. Oh my gosh. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, you're talking about some, you're talking about a serious, serious drug to cause something like that. Now we don't know, you know, what percent of the population it probably causes that. But I'm but just like, saying, oh my it, God. if, if it's known that, that some medications can produce that, what could be actually, produced to specifically get that mm-hmm. you know i mean wow yeah that just That's blew scary. my mind when i when i saw that i've never I'm heard like, sleep paralysis wow. and the side effects before no yeah or um basically being in a waking dream that one is 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 scary in and of itself okay <laughs> i mean it feels so, like wow. May cause lucid dreaming. I find me up. Visions, <laughs> visions of cryptozoological creatures, Mothman. <laughs> you might see Mothman <laughs> staring at you. Alien abductions. Oh, oh, and hallucinations. I mean, it talks about hallucinations. You're going to just yeah, see yeah. a bunch of weird shit. Prophetic visions. <laughs> May <Yeah>. occur. <laughs> Mothman prophecies. <laughs> May occur. So, going back to the Mothman stuff, I, I was, while we were talking, I was Googling this. Um, gigantism in animals because i you know we i I mentioned that to 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 lauren while we were talking um there's been a lot of cases of like you know most of the 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 largest uh most bizarrely large specimens of a lot of creatures that have been found have been like much larger than 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 the average like there there was an elephant that was like i think forget it was twenty seven thousand pounds which is over twice the size of a normal grown like adult male, yeah. Things like that, you know. <clears throat> so uh, I was just thinking, you know, what if what if this was like a great horned owl with a like, genetic disorder? Because those things get three and a half feet tall when they're normal. So if you imagine one that's like five and a half feet tall, yeah, they could look you in the eyes. 
Yeah. Like, I mean, that could totally explain the whole phenomenon. And there's, there's tons of precedent for it. Like he even said there was, you know, there's been, um, skeletons found of, of giant owls, yeah. giant owls, you know, 10,000 years ago, which isn't a very long time. And right. Geologic right. Time. And, and, and that might've been a, a different species or something, but still, if it was just like a, a specific case of like a genetic disorder or something, you you know, that would terrify the crap out of anyone that saw it. Well, one of the aspects of the Mothman case, and some people have, have looked at this, um, that it happened in this TNT area. Yeah. Which was this place where the, they, they put the side pro the, uh, what is it? The uh, side products of dynamite or TNT production, they would store it there during World War II. And some people have said, well, maybe it was some kind of weird mutant that, you know, the, that had, that was chemically, the, you know, the, if its DNA had been chemically enhanced or something like that. I've heard that as a theory put forth for Mothman, too. Well, and owls can be very aggressive. Yeah, it can you. be. I've been attacked by owls. Yeah. Terrifying. Oh, you have? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I was like a young teenager, I was outside in my backyard talking on the the, the cordless phone, and uh, I was just like walking around, and this thing just came down and knocked me in the head. And so I went tearing down the yard, and like I was like jumping down flat as it would like swoop down on me, and mm-hmm. it, was, it was pretty scary. My mom's kind of mystical, you know, so she was like, oh, it's your spirit animal. I was like, just trying to kill me, mom. <laughs> Are you sure it was an owl? Did you have any missing time? No, no, it was, it was owl. <laughs> I saw it. Well, I mean, we're going to talk about this. Uh, Mike Cleland's coming back next week. That's awesome. I didn't even know uh, that. Because <laughs> he's got a new book called Stories from the Messengers. We talked about his book, The Messengers. Uh, where he talked about the different theories and some, and he had some of the stories, but this is all the stories that he has collected through making that book. That's going to be awesome. So, yeah, I'm going through that now. And I can, I'll send you guys. Um, so it's, uh, it's going to be real interesting to talk, to talk to him more about the owl stuff. And the five foot owl, um, there's actually quite a few stories that he has about that about the people having these UFO encounters and then seeing some kind of large owl right in front of them. So the Mothman, the name is really just kind of a misnomer. Oh yeah, for sure. So there could be a lot more to it that has a connection to his material as well. So that's next week. So stay tuned. All right. Well, I think that's it. Did we mention the, uh, the episode we just did with Lauren? Hmm. Yeah. Uh, we did a we we actually did a Patreon. We did about twenty more minutes with uh, with Lauren Coleman about Rob's favorite subject. That's right, phantom clowns from the uh, expert himself. Yes, the man who coined the phrase. Yes. So if you want to hear that, go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal and you Rob sign will up never for. Never listen to it again. But <laughs> yes, you can. I'm gonna have nightmares tonight, and I'm doing it for you. So go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Our lowest tier, you get access to all of it, all the bonus episodes that we do. Um, you know, it, it helps us pay for um, hosting and website costs and, right. and all the little things that, that you know, that, that cost us money to produce a show. And we, we appreciate all of you guys that are out there that are already subscribers. Anyone else that's interested, you know, go check it out. Uh, if you don't want to subscribe and you want to contribute to the show, you can go to our website at conspiranormal.com and just do a one-time 
donation there. And if you don't have any extra cash, but you still want to support the show, a great way to do that is just a five-star review on iTunes because we really appreciate all of those. They, they help us get the word out. They, you know, boost our, our ratings there so more people can find us. And yeah, thanks Absolutely. to all of you. Yeah, thank you to all the all the patrons. Um, send us money for our cigar fund. Keep the squirrels out of my studio. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> all right, guys. We'll be back next week. Um, you know, Luke didn't make it tonight. I'm, I'm, I'm crushed. But, yeah. We'll see him someday. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. All right, guys. We'll be back next week on... Conspiranormal! Inaba. to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator book guided tours activities excursions and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche interesting stuff in between so you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering so you can plan with confidence free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected and 24/7 customer support means you can travel worry free Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.